Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, wait. It's a passage out of context. It's it's eisegesis. Well, welcome back to the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Jolly, and obviously you know what our topic is going to be on today, eisegesis. And just so that you know, somewhere around the world today, Jimmy is slaying the Goliath of taxes. Randy is speaking to the dry bones of unemployment. Helen is parting the waters of broken relationships. Martin is calling forth the Lazarus of happiness in his life. Jimmy, Randy, Helen, Martin... What do they all have in common? They've all caught the plague. No, my dear friends, not the Rona, but the scourge of eisegesis. Jimmy, you're not David, and the IRS isn't Goliath. Bummer. Randy, you're not Ezekiel. Thank our lucky stars. Helen, well, Moses died a long, long time ago. And Martin, newsflash, you're not Jesus. And Lazarus was a real guy, while your happiness is just an emotional state of being. Now, all choking aside, our topic today is really quite a serious one, eisegesis. Just what is eisegesis? Well, it's a term that describes when a person reads into the text what that same person wants to find or thinks he finds in the text. So uh, it inserts subjective ideas into the text. Now, we kind of started with some humorous examples, but sadly, those examples have all come from real-life instances where people have either purposefully or ignorantly twisted the scriptures. This is called eisegesis. And really, it's merely when people make the text say what the text doesn't really say. Now, on the other hand, what we want to see is the exact opposite, exegesis. Exegesis is the interpretive approach that reads out of the text what the original author meant to convey. I know those are both big $5 words, but eisegesis, bad. Exegesis, good. Right? Eisegesis reads into the text. Exegesis reads out of the text what the original author meant to convey. In other words, it asks the question, what does this text actually say? Rather than how many people approach the text, which is, what do I want it to say? Now, in the charismatic church, eisegesis is incredibly prominent. In fact, I would wager that it would be challenging, if not impossible, to find a charismatic church where this type of interpretation isn't actually the norm. You know, when God inspired men by the Holy Spirit to write scripture, he intended to communicate specific thoughts and ideas. It wasn't that the Bible means one thing to you and it means another thing to me, that certainly was not God's intent. If that were the case, then we could just, to be quite frank, throw the Bible out the window and join right into our postmodern culture of what feels acceptable to me must be right. What feels acceptable to you must be right. Definitely not how God intended us to read the scriptures that he left us. But that's, that's what many in the church have done with the Bible. They've manipulated passages and teachings to suit their fancy or so-called ministries. Again, this is not what real students of the Bible are supposed to do. We are supposed to ask the question, what does this 
text mean? The meaning of the text is what the author intended the text to say. And so there's only one meaning found in each text, and that is the author's meaning. Unfortunately, in a lot of the church today, subjectivity and the individual's feelings have become the author of the text rather than God. But guess what, my friend? You don't get to decide what Scripture says. I don't get to decide. God alone has chosen what the meaning of the text is, and so it is God's meaning that we should be seeking. Now, Edie Hirsch, who is a literary critic, made a rather astute observation when he said this, and I quote, When critics deliberately banish the original author, they usurp his place, and this led unerringly to some of our present-day theoretical confusions. When before there had been but one author, there now arose a multiplicity of them, each carrying as much authority authority as the next. To banish the original author as the determiner of meaning was to reject the only compelling normative principle that could lend validity to an interpretation. For if the meaning of a text is not the author's, then no interpretation can possibly correspond to the meaning of the text, since the text can have no determinate or determinable meaning. In other words, and in layman's terms, if the meaning of the text isn't the author's meaning, it's rather useless. So, next time you hear a preacher talk about how you are David conquering your Goliath of stress, well, just know that that preacher has banished the author, God, and has become a usurping author. The reality is that men wearing skinny jeans on concert stages don't get to change the meaning of the text, neither do you or me for that matter. Now, another example of this, especially typical in the charismatic church, is using scripture to validate themselves personally or their ministry or an individual, and I know I'm going to step on some toes possibly here, but it's just the truth. And around election time, we hear so much of this particular one in the charismatic church. So a big one we hear right now is how President Trump is Cyrus. You know, we heard that at, at the beginning of his first election and also just thinking of all the many so-called prophets who have a 50-50% chance of being right every election doesn't make you a prophet. Anyway, that we're prophesying, quote, unquote, that President Trump is Cyrus of this generation. Well, guess what? Dear friends, no, he's not Cyrus. He's Donald J. Trump. You don't get to manipulate scripture to promote yourself, your ministry, or another person just because you like them. Or you don't get to manipulate scripture because you don't like someone. We just don't get to do that. Now, I, I should say here that there there is a difference between the meaning of an individual text and the revelation of an entire doctrine that that text may be speaking to. So we understand that difference. We're keeping in mind the difference between the single text and a whole topic to which that text contributes. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those passages that get separated from their actual meaning. I mean... I don't know how many times we have to hear context is king, context is king, context is king, right? I mean, it's the market equivalent of location, location, location. And yet, context gets trampled on like a spider in a woman's kitchen. Here's an excellent example for you. And it's one that... I heard all the time in the charismatic church, and to be honest, it's one that I used quite often in the charismatic church myself. And, you know, but it's not limited to the charismatic church. I hear this a lot in the reformed camp as well. Ouch. Um, 
in the Baptist circles, yep, hear it all the time, and it's this passage that we all know and love, and lots of people just misuse, and it's this, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. It's a great passage. It's a wonderful passage. This is Matthew 18, 20. Now, I've heard preachers say this when attendance is low at the service. They'll say, you know, I know we've got a lot of uh, people on vacation this morning, but we're two or three are gathered. I've heard home groups use this when they only have a couple of people in the weekly home meetings, you know. They'll say something like, I know we've only got, you know, four people this evening, but remember the Bible says we're two or three are gathered. I've heard church planners use this when starting out preaching to just a few people. I get it. It's awkward. I mean, it is for me anyway, but um, it's a misuse of the passage. I've definitely heard this at prayer meetings. Prayer meetings often tend to be the smallest meetings in churches. Well, prayer meetings and volunteer meetings, but anyway, they'll look around and in a congregation of, I don't know, 100 people, there might be... You're lucky if there's 10%, lucky, 5%, maybe there's a handful, and the preacher will look around and say, well, you know, where there are two or three are gathered. Now, there's a lot of problems with this, but just consider with me for a moment the implications of using the passage this way. All right, let's just do uh, some brain exercising. Firstly, if you interpreted the passage the way it's used, you would need at least two people to pray, right? So you're traveling, you stop at a restaurant, you go in to grab a bite to eat, your food comes, then you bow your head to thank God for for your meal, and all of a sudden you realize, oh man, I can't thank God for this. God's not going to hear my prayer. I need at least two. So what do you do? I mean, you could not thank God because apparently he doesn't hear you if you don't have two, or you can just pop over to the next table, interrupt their meal, and say something like, "Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, Uh, I'd like to thank God for my meal, but I need another person to pray with me, you know, because we're two or more gathered. Or maybe, you know, I think the example Vody Bauckham gives is something like this. You wake up in the morning and you want to have your prayer time, but you realize that you're all alone in the house, so you have to shuffle over to your neighbor neighbor's house in your robe and slippers and, you know, tap on their window to wake them up because, you know, you need two or more to pray. This is where you have to go if you use the passage the way most people tend to use it. This is the problem with with this type of interpretation. And if that sounds a bit ridiculous, it's, it's because it is ridiculous. You know, the problem is that that passage has absolutely zero to do with how many people you need in order for God to be present. I, I mean, God is omnipresent, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, omnipresent, what does that mean? It means he's he's all present. He's present everywhere at all times. So that kind of means that you don't need two or more. God is always in your midst, whether you like it or not, whether you want him to be or you don't, whether you're a sinner or a saint, you know, you're saved or you're unsaved. Uh, God's always there. He's omnipresent. So, Of course, it would also mean that if you believed the passage the way that it's used, it would mean that God also does not hear the man or woman who is alone after listening to uh, their very first Paul Washer sermon and decide that they're not actually saved, who repent from their sins sitting in their apartment broken down. If any of you have listened to Paul Washer sermons, you understand. If you take that text the way that it's often used, God wouldn't hear the repentant prayers of those who are coming to faith. So you can see the problem, right? But if the if the verse doesn't mean that, then what does it what does it mean? 
Well, that's a valid question. You know, I, eisegesis reads into the text. And so eisegesis says, and this is the problem, oh, see, I can validate my small church meeting because it says where two or more are gathered. This is when we approach the text and we're reading into a Bible text. Now, we are probably all guilty of this at some stage, and we have to be careful, but we can't ignore context. And eisegesis, instead of looking for, instead of the small uh church pastor, by the way, there's nothing wrong with being a small church pastor, um, a small church pastor who's looking for a scripture to make himself feel better, maybe, or to make his congregants feel better because they're 10 people, finds this passage and thinks, oh, okay, see, this is comforting. Well, that's eisegesis. He's reading into the text what doesn't belong there. While exegesis, which is what we want, right, says what does the text actually mean? Well, in this case, with this particular passage we're talking about right now, that text is in the context of church discipline. That's right. Church discipline. Read the whole paragraph. Read the chapter. Church discipline. It's not a promise of God's special presence if two or more are gathered, but rather it's demanding witnesses. It has to do with church discipline. I like the way that John MacArthur puts it in his commentary on Matthew. He says this, and I quote, The context demands that the two or three are witnesses in the process of discipline. To ask or to do anything in God's name is not to utter his name, but to ask and to work according to his divine will and character. For the witnesses to have gathered gathered in his name, therefore, for them to have faithfully performed their work of verifying the repentance or impenitence of a sinner, of a sinning brother or sister on the Lord's behalf. When the church gathers in the Lord's name and for his cause and glory, it must engage in self-purifying ministry under his power and authority and with his heavenly confirmation and partnership, end quote. In other words, God is in agreement with the discipline as it is administered according to his word. That's what that passage is talking about. Nothing to do with how many people you need to pray or God's blessing on whether or not there's two or three or more. This is such a huge difference in how that verse is commonly used. But, you know, I think it's it really is a great example of why hermeneutics is important. Why how we interpret scripture is important. It's a great example of why eisegesis is really, really bad. Now, I I think a lot of days now, times, that passage has been so misused that people just hear it and, you know, they just assume that that that's the right way to interpret it. But clearly, it's not. And, you know, again, when we were kind of thinking through this passage and the implications earlier, to be frank, many problems with misinterpretation could be resolved if We just simply, you know, sat back and took the time to think through the implications of how we're interpreting a passage. That would resolve a lot of issues if we just thought through the implications of our interpretation. Now, we mentioned some examples earlier, but I want to put some terms to some of those. Uh, you know, there's the there's the narcissistic eisegesis, or narcissesis as it's called. Uh, Stephen Furtick is the king of narcissesis. This is where you insert yourself into a Bible story or passage. In other words, you are David, and Goliath is something in your life that you need to conquer. Yep, narcissus. Uh, it's a form of eisegesis. Except the problem is that you aren't David. David is dead. 
or rather he's alive in Christ. And Goliath was a real person who was slain by David a long, long time ago, whom you are not. This type of eisegesis, to be blunt, it robs scripture of its beauty, of its meaning, of its value, and it's nothing more than a form of rewriting scripture. It's a subjective approach that plays into the postmodern emotionalism of the day. It's humanistic. It's humanism, right? It's all about, it makes scripture all about the happiness of man, right? Everyone wants to be a conquering David. Well, I'm not David. I'm Nathaniel, and I don't have a Goliath. I have stress to deal with. I have to pay taxes. I have things I don't enjoy that I have to overcome. I have sin to repent from. But that's not Goliath. Goliath was a real man, and he's dead. So this form of eisegesis, it makes the scripture all about you. But the scripture isn't about you. It's about Christ. It's about his kingdom. It's about his completed work of redemption on the cross. It's about the love of the Father for the Son. And it's all for God's glory to the benefit of God's people. You know, the Bible is about Christ. It's not about me. It's not about you. Some other eisegetical examples would be things like the Roman Catholic's idea that Peter was the first pope, right? So the Catholic system has set up, you know, the papacy and they search the scriptures to try to fit their system into the scriptures. And so they come up with this idea that Peter was the first pope. Except the problem is that that's inserting their own system into scripture and you can't find it actually in scripture because it's not there. Outside of these issues, right, and outside of the charismatic misuse of scripture outside of the examples we've given what we're probably most familiar with right now and everyone listening to the podcast right now you know you will understand this it's the eisegesis that makes certain didactic passages say what they just don't say this is happening all over the place today with the social justicians of the day between those guys the social justicians and you know so-called Christian liberals, the Bible to them says all kind of things in the last few years that it has never said before in all of history. This is eisegesis, reading into the text what isn't there. I mean, we have people claiming that Christ was a migrant, refugee, and person of color. Therefore, the Bible teaches that we should have open borders. Wrong. No such teaching in Scripture. We have people who say, well, the Bible says you should love your neighbor as yourself, and therefore, homosexuals should be welcome and accepted because I'm a homosexual and I want to love my neighbor like I love myself. Wrong. Totally against the teaching of Scripture, and yet this is... This is what eisegesis does. It's also what sinfulness does. I mean, look, we have people who insert social justice into Scripture every place it Scripture uses the term justice, right? Every true believer believes in biblical justice. But biblical justice and social justice, those two things are not even remotely related. There's so many examples of this in, in our current day. Um, I mean, we've got people who insist that because the Bible speaks of justice and, you know, bodily autonomy is a social justice issue, that God must be okay with abortion. What? It seems crazy, right? And it is crazy. That's absolutely insane. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, come on, all right, Nathaniel, you're being hyperbolic. No one really goes that far 
but they do. In fact, listen to this quote from a young lady named Cast, who, by the way, is a, uh, a, a lady who's a self-proclaimed pastor now, I think, who used justice as a way to read into Scripture God's approval for abortion. Listen to what she says, and I quote, Like many millennials coming out of evangelicalism, I began to care about different justice issues. I began to care about the earth and racial justice and interfaith justice. And one of the topics that arose for me was abortion. I began questioning, what about bodily autonomy? Isn't that justice? How would God ever infringe upon that? How you like that, eisegesis? I mean, that's a crazy example. I'll put a link to the article I took that from so that you can see the context. Uh, but... I mean, you just can't get around the context. This is a so-called professing Christian reading into the scripture, you know, in terms of justice, social justice, trying to validate abortion, which God is clearly against, right? I mean, it's not even a debate for sensible, real Christians, so, I, I think you get the point. Eisegesis is never a good thing. And we don't go around calling it eisegesis. It's really just twisting scripture, taking scripture out of context. All right, but this is the theological term for it. It's never a good thing. And it might seem harmless, such as, you know, using David as a way to encourage someone Although, the truth be told, changing scripture is never harmless. Um, it can range from something like that to something as insane as what I just read you, an attempt to make God okay with abortion, which is clearly against scripture, not in any way, shape, or form acceptable. Eisegesis always leads to, you know, misinterpretation, wrong thinking. I would argue that in the end, it, it leads to sinful living. Bad theology leads to bad living, right? Bad doctrine leads to bad living. There's just really no way to get around that. Now, look, I, I realize that none of us are perfect interpreters. I'm certainly not a perfect interpreter of Scripture, but this is why we have confessions. This is why they're good. This is why we study commentaries. This is why we stay away from hermeneutics that tend to lend themselves to subjectivity and hermeneutics that lend themselves to looking for some kind of hidden meaning you know the the idea that god's meaning and man's meaning were different when scripture was written it's just not it's not a good hermeneutic you know since it's plentier this idea that we can find a, a deeper almost kind of hidden meaning it's not gnostic but it's getting it it kind of feels that way you know divine concursus i think is is far better which basically says that god's intent and the author the human author's intent were the same thing well, we believe in God's sovereignty, right? Surely God made sure that when the Apostle Paul wrote Scripture, uh, that he wrote exactly what he wanted him to write, and he meant exactly what Paul meant when he wrote it. Is that to say that Paul understood everything in all of its infinite detail and wisdom? Well, no. But there's not some secret hidden meaning. Okay, that's off topic a little, sorry, a little, a little rant. But anyway... My point is that none of us are perfect interpreters. This is why we have confessions. This is why we study commentaries. It's why we choose our hermeneutics carefully. You know, this is why we reference other faithful men of God because it's simply too easy to fall into the trap of reading into Scripture what isn't actually present in Scripture. Well, sadly, I, I can tell you, I can't tell you, rather, how many Christians I've met over the years who have made comments like, well, <laughs> 
I don't need another man to help me read the Bible. Or more common in the charismatic church, they would say something like this, well, I have the Holy Spirit. I don't need commentaries. I, I mean... It's sad to hear that, and to be honest, the arrogance of statements like that is off the charts. I'm at a loss for words just thinking about how horrendous it is to hear another human being basically communicate that they can understand all of Scripture in perfection in its entirety. That's not humility. That's extreme arrogance. Now, I mean, you know, maybe I'm on the low end of the totem pole in terms of massive intellect and hermeneutical prowess, but I recognize that I need all the help I can get when I'm interpreting scripture. So, you know, I do my interpretations, I read scripture, I check other sources afterwards. It's a good thing to do. It's a good habit to get into. The humble Christian desires more than anything else when it comes to interpreting scripture to discover God's meaning. God's message, the humble Christian isn't willing to trust himself explicitly enough to disregard the work of others. That is a dangerous place to be in. Does that mean we should be parrots? No. Nor is it an excuse to be lazy when it comes to studying the Word of God. But there is some security in knowing that after you've done your own exegesis, you reference the work of those godly men of old and faithful men around you now and discover that your conclusion was theirs as well, right? There's some security in that, acceptably so. By the same token, if your interpretation goes against how the majority of all of, you know, the early church fathers and faithful men before you, um, then there's cause for a red flag. If your interpretation has gone against the understanding of Christian history, you should probably check yourself. So if somehow you can read scripture and you can get to a place where murdering innocent children's okay, yeah, you're going against all of church history's understanding of what's right and wrong in the sight of God. If you can get to the place where you know, so-called women pastors are acceptable, you're going against all of church history's understanding of Paul's teaching. You should check yourself when that happens. Again, that doesn't mean we should be parrots. But this is God's word after all. We should handle it with great care, prayerfully and diligently, you know, studying to show ourselves approved. After all, there are some pretty dire warnings against changing and manipulating scripture. In fact, let, let's look at a couple of those warnings. I mean, they're important. So, Revelation 22, 18, 19 says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, now this is referring to the book of Revelation, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, specifically referring to Revelation, Revelation, but the book of Revelation is wholly inspired with the other books of the Bible, and so it would be applicable, right, to the rest of God's Word. That's a pretty extreme warning. Proverbs 30, 5-6 says this, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. I mean, this ought to give us a healthy fear of handling the Word of God, and beyond that... The scriptures are that which bring life. I can't bring anyone to life with my words. You can't bring anyone to life with your words, right? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. My words aren't sharper than any two-edged sword. 
It goes on to say, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Can your words pierce to the division of soul and spirit? Because my words can't pierce to the division of soul and spirit. Continuing, says, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. My point is that people need the word of God as God intended it to be understood Not my interpretation, not just your interpretation, but our interpretation needs to be the right one, the one that God meant for us to get out of the text. And we've got to work hard to make sure that the meaning we get out of the text is the one God wanted us to get out of. It's just too easy to manipulate biblical text this day and age, and it happens all all over the place. I mean, we want people to hear from God, right? Not from us. At least that's the desire of every true believer. It's not our intelligent and witty statements that pierce the division of soul and spirit. It's the living word of God. So, you know, Stephen Furtick can preach that everyone in his congregation is a David if he wants to, but that's not going to bring life to anyone because as much as you might like to think that the IRS and taxes is your Goliath, that is just not a giant you're ever going to slay. You pay taxes when you're born. You're going to pay taxes while you're living. You pay taxes when you're dead. It's just not going to happen. So don't twist the scriptures to try to say something it doesn't say. I mean, really, how people handle the word of God comes down to their view of God. A low view of God will always grant a low view of Scripture, and a low view of Scripture will always be permissive of liberties and interpretation of Scripture. So, show me a person who can justify abortion using Scripture, and I'll show you a person who has no actual real value for Scripture. Show me a person who wants to write the Apostle Paul off in Scripture, and I'll show you a person who doesn't actually value Scripture. Now, conversely, a high view of God will always cause a reverent and careful reading of the text. So, next time you open your Bible, just pause and remember who the author of your Bible really is, and that the goal is to understand His meaning, God's meaning, not to insert our own. That's the goal. It should be the goal for every Christian. And so, really and truly, you know, I jokingly referenced eisegesis at the beginning as a plague, but to be honest, it is a plague. It's worse than catching the flu, right? Twisting scripture manipulating scripture, whether it's intentional or not, is a horrible thing to do, and it can bear intensely disastrous consequences. So we do want to treat it like a plague. When we open scripture and we're reading to find the meaning, we want to do it carefully and prayerfully and diligently. And after we're done, it is a good practice to go back and check commentaries, to check what men of old what the conclusion they've come to on this passage is. I'm not going to say you have to agree with everything you come to. There's never been a perfect human being. But if your interpretation goes against what the majority of all of Christianity historically has believed, then that's a big red flag. And it's worth noting. And it's probably, if that's the case, worth putting the pause button on your view and going back and doing some extra study. Let's not be like those people who are teaching that where two or three are gathered. Because if that's the case, the next time you pray and you're alone, God wouldn't hear your prayer. So, clearly that can't be true because God is everywhere all the time at once. Well, if this week's episode has been helpful to you, 
I would love to hear about it. Or we actually am starting a prayer list for all of our listeners. And uh, a couple times a week, I'll sit down and actually pray through the list. So if you would like to get on our prayer list, please email us. You can do that at truthbeknownpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Truthbeknownpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support our podcast or if you'd like to support my wife and I as missionaries, we're here in Alaska uh, church planning, then you can do that on our Patreon account, which is found at www.patreon.com slash jollymissionaries. So thank you for listening to the Truth Be Known podcast. And as always, until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.